you would now please open your Bibles to Nehemiah 8 and Acts chapter 2. The title of the sermon is The Joy of the Lord. And if you would please stand together that we might express our reverence for God's written word publicly and visibly. We're going to read from Nehemiah 8, simply verses 9 through 12, and we'll turn over and read verses at the end of Acts chapter 2. Elsewhere in Scripture, we're reminded that the grass outside will wither and those beautiful flowers will fade away, but the word of the living God will endure forever. So the people of God strive to hear and to heed it faithfully together. Let us do that now. Nehemiah chapter 8 at verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, And send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions, and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Now please turn over to the book of Acts. Chapter 2, beginning at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done to the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Thus far the reading of the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, as we turn now to your word, we recognize that apart from the ministry of your Holy Spirit, uh, they would be uh, but empty echoes in our ears. They would have no effect upon our hearts, no transforming value to our lives. But then comes the Spirit, and your promise, promise to bless the reading and especially the preaching of your own word, that the people of God would indeed believe, that the people of God would not only understand, but would even obey the very truth of the living God. And so we pray that that life-giving ministry of the Holy Spirit would now work in our hearts in such a way that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would be glorified together in the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And just to be clear, we are in the book of Nehemiah. excited about the text this morning. The title, in many ways, says it all. We are thinking about the joy of the Lord, and there is a certain sense in which I intend to argue that there is something otherworldly about Christian joy, especially when the Bible is used correctly in that context. But it's also possible to use the Bible incorrectly, even a text like we have before us. I was astounded when I read in a commentary on this text that uh, that Nehemiah chapter 8 
And verse 10 in particular was one oft-quoted by, of all people, Adolf Hitler, who dropped the phrase, the Lord, and took away from this verse, uh, in a very perverted sense, that joy leads to strength. And for Hitler, in his youth camps, what this mean was, exercise ought to be a regular part of the activities of young men whom he wished to condition into strong workers. It became, for Hitler, more like this, joy becomes strength. What a terrible and perverted way of understanding Nehemiah 8.10. Hopefully, by the time we get done, uh, we will understand it rightly, believe it rightly, and practice it rightly. It's because the joy of the Lord himself is our strength. If you are following the outline, you see the three points of the sermon. And we'll take them in that order, first beginning to consider together why it is that God's people weep. Already as I say that, uh, you sense the tenderness of the question, you sense the vulnerability of our hearts. Nehemiah 8 displays in many ways a remarkable occasion. For those of you that have been here in the last several weeks, you know what I'm talking about, and those who are visiting can have a little bit of orientation here. The people of God in Nehemiah chapter 8 are now back in Israel, back in Jerusalem, and back into their own towns. They are settled, they are back from exile, and this is a big deal. For a long time they have been gone, for a long time they have been far from home, for a long time they have been weeping, and now settled back into their lands, into their towns, the city gates are rebuilt, the city wall is rebuilt, even the temple itself is now standing, as we noted last week, when you might have expected the people of God to take a break, they're understandably tired, they do the opposite, they come together as one man, we are told in 8.1, to hear the word of God proclaimed. And if you think, you know, I've got to pull this a couple of times, if you think you ever hear a long sermon here, it'd be nothing to like what they endured in Nehemiah 8. Six hours of standing. All those who could understand. And there's no reference to any complaining. It really was a miracle. They've come together to hear the word of God. Uh, in the last text, as I noted, they stood for this long uh, period. But what is remarkable is that they're described with a, with a sense of, Uh, outstanding unity. Notice again that phrase, they gather together as one man. There you see the unity of the people of God bound together around the word of God. But that unity extends beyond the people. It is also seen in the leaders. This particular section notices the work of Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra, who was a scribe and a priest, as well as other scribes and Levites, who all gathered together, again, around the ministry of the word. If Ezra and 13 men on the platform that is elevated above them like a pulpit were doing the reading, another 13 came alongside Ezra and the first 13 to translate the text into the known language of the people, not all of them spoke Hebrew, and to give them the sense or the application of the text. So here you have not only unity in the people, but unity in the leadership, all centered around and bound to the word of God. But they find another point of unity, and it is a sad point. For even as Nehemiah comes onto the scene and the ministry of the word of God has been declared amongst the people of God, the people are weeping and mourning. It's an interesting reaction to the word of God. The people are weeping in mourning. Nehemiah, remember, is not a priest uh, or even a scribe. He is a layman. But 
Uh, he is a layman who has a heart for the people of God and who responds to moments of need or crisis, much like when people are driving down the road and an accident happens up in front of them. Some of you have been in that position. Even though you're not a medically trained professional, you still get out of your car to help. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does here. He intervenes with a moment of spiritual triage. But again, uh, what is their malady? What is it that has them mourning and weeping? Well, in some ways, this text is a puzzle, Uh, Because you would recognize rather quickly, and you're probably already thinking it, uh, that in some ways, their weeping and mourning is a good thing. They are weeping and mourning. Look at verse 9. Nehemiah is the governor and the scribes. I said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For the people wept as they heard the words of the law. In many ways, uh, this is not a bad thing at all. They are weeping and mourning in response to the word of God, a word that they have not heard for a very long time. In many ways, uh, this is a good response that they have. You could describe it as a response of humility, a response of contrition, even a tearful response to the ministry of God's word. Pause and think about it. Uh, These are the returned exiles who've been away in Babylon now for some time. And here now, they have come back. And as they come back, they hear the word of God For the first time in a very long time. How long had it been since they heard the word of God? They are exiles, again, just back from captivity who traveled a great distance, likely not having access even to the word of God uh, while they were exiled far away in a foreign country. And after that exile, they come back to Jerusalem where there they work on the temple and then the walls of the city day and night. At this point in Israel's history, there is not yet a synagogue No place where the word of God would be kept on a shelf and read to the people on the Sabbath. And perhaps of good note, especially for people living today in this crazy time as it is, they did not have Bibles and, it's a good thing you're seated, they did not have phones. Why do I say that? Because most of you are using your phone for your Bible, which is another subject I'll address in a different context. But I do want to point out, let me say something that will come off almost a little bit strange and in need of correction. But but in a certain sense, those paper Bibles that you see around, let alone the iPhones that have a Bible app on them, uh, these, in a certain sense, are both modern inventions. What What do I mean by that? Well, Christians often forget that for roughly the first 1,800 years of church history, Christians did not own their own Bibles. What we have now, in a certain sense, is a modern invention that's fairly recent in the history of literature. And the punctuation points along the way that change that are somewhat familiar, perhaps not enough. In 1436, Johannes Gutenberg invented a printing press, but that did not put the Bible into the hands of everyone. It just made it possible to start making copies. In 1843, the steam-powered rotary press is the likely point at which things really begin to change. In 1843, when Bibles become more and more uh, prolific or prevalent in people's homes, but first beginning uh, even with those who could actually afford to have such things as books, and then eventually becoming a common thing. And so now, all of us have a Bible app. All of us have multiple copies or translations of the Word of God in our home, most likely, and that is fairly recent. People in Nehemiah 8 did not have those things, and they had not heard the word of God in a long, long time. 
And the word that they hear particularly, as we noted last week, is the Torah, uh, the five books of Moses, including the Ten Commandments. And as they heard it, uh, they heard it, uh, some in their own language as they understood, and others in a language that sounded foreign to them. And not only was it hard to understand simply from the perspective of language, they needed the help of Ezra's extra 13 to understand it and to rightly apply it to their lives. And so finally, when they hear it, when they understand it, when they consider its application, the people of God weep and mourn. Ezra may be reading the word of God, but in many ways it was the word of God who was reading them. Sometimes we read the book of God. Sometimes we are the book that God himself opens up. And what effect did it have? It was searching their hearts. It was exposing to them the scaring and scarring reality of sin. All of a sudden, in a new and fresh way, as had not happened for a very long time, they began to realize the great gap that existed. A great gap, not simply between where they were geographically, the long road from Israel to where they stood in exile, but even more importantly, the great gap between them and God. The God who is, and the God who commands. They realize as well the great gap between what the Word of God says and how it has related to their lives, or the lack thereof. That There is a great gap between what God's Word said and their practice of it. They had done that which they ought not to have done. They had left undone those things which God had commanded. And as they hear these things, as they realize these things, they begin to sense and realize the weight of it, the weight of their sins, and they can't take it. They are crushed by it. They are alarmed by it. They realize that in a certain sense, like a father of old, here too do they stand naked, ashamed, and unmasked. And it raises a question, a question with pausing, whether you're in Nehemiah 8 in 444 BC, as it were, Or sitting here today, how do you respond to the word of God? Does it pierce and unmask you? Does it penetrate to those insulated parts of our hearts? Does it dethrone us from our pride and self-exaltation? Does it pierce? Arguably, many have said it, you know that it's true, that one of the greatest crises among the people of God then, in a certain sense, is the same crisis with the people of God now, And it's a distant relationship with the Word of God. Or, perhaps for those who hear it every week and have great access, a casual relationship with the Word of God. We hear the Word of God often, and it can tempt us to become callous and indifferent. God takes the time to speak to us through His Word, but do we take the time to actually listen, to hear it, as well as to heed it? Say it differently. The intention of God's Word is to pierce us, but how stony and insulated our hearts can become at times if we are brutally honest. But when the people of God hear the Word of God on that fall day in 444 BC, they are undone as one man. What they have in common is not simply hearing the word of God, but being pierced by it. And they begin to weep and mourn. In many ways, they are like the people of God in Daniel 6, a similar context, who have been searched and found wanting. But Ezra, Nehemiah, the priests, the scribes, and the Levites, again, they respond as one man, and they have a balm, a word from God itself, himself. They will not have them weeping and mourning. 
There are other days for that, but today is not that day. And that takes us to our second point. God's response to their weeping. Let me say it differently. God's response to our weeping. Two things are worth noting here as we begin uh, into this second point. They relate to the calendar. I know that's not always uh, the most exciting stuff at first glance, but I've mentioned to you that this is a fall day, uh, September, October, 444 B.C. And two things that you ought to note is what looms on the horizon. One is that we are on this day, this first day of the month, Tishri, 10 days away from the Day of Atonement. This has a lot to do with why Ezra, Nehemiah, and the priests tell the people not to weep. For they are 10 days away from the Day of Atonement. This is that day of great sacrifice in Israel's calendar. That day uh, when as well, uh, there would be a scapegoat, uh, one who would be sacrificed, another that would be sent away off into the wilderness, symbolizing that God uh, would take the sins of his people and send them away, never to be seen again. Uh, We sometimes uh, use the phrase, as far as the east is from the west. But if you point east and you point west, the point is those two things never touch, never to reunite. This would become a time of celebration, and that's the theme, that's the point. The next day, this is the second thing, uh, we'll begin the Feast of Booths. And I'll get into that more next week, but to say one thing about it this week can be maybe helpful. From Deuteronomy 16, verse 13. You shall keep the Feast of Booth seven days when you've gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press. You shall rejoice in your feast. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast of the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you will be all together, and hear this word, Joyful. And I want to understand, underscore uh, this relationship uh, between joy and holiness, actually. Holiness is a word that comes up here several times in our text, and it connects to this idea of joy. One of the things that marks out the people of God in many ways uh, is, is the very idea that the people of God are holy and set apart from the world. But it's not just the people of God that are holy and set apart. Be with me here. Uh, God also sets apart time. People are holy unto God. And time, portions of time, are holy to God as well. Look at Nehemiah 8 and verse 9. The reason that weeping on this day is wrong is because The day, notice how it starts in the quotes there, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Well, you might be tempted to think I'm making too much of it. I'm worried that you're making too little. That phrase about being holy is repeated in verse 10. You can see it down uh, again there. The day is holy to the Lord. And it's repeated one more time in verse 11, the day is holy. Three times we are told that this day is holy and it connects to why they're not to be mourning, rather they should be rejoicing. Holiness and joy are inseparably related. Holiness and joy are inseparably related. This is repeated almost as though the word of God is using a highlighter, repetition becoming the best teacher, and the point is, this day is set apart, because some days are. We're leaning into the Feast of Booths, 
This was a time in which Israel would celebrate what God had done and not weep over what they had done or left undone. There would be days for that. There are even seasons for that. Ecclesiastes 4.3, there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and even a time to dance. So we Presbyterians have something to work on. Zoom out perspective continues to help us a good bit. You know and I know that there is much weeping in the Bible. There's so much uh, you can't even come close to attempting to refer to all of it. But a quick sampling makes the point. In the book of Genesis, people begin weeping. Why? Because death has entered the world. And in every scene where you find someone dying, you find someone weeping. Abraham weeping over Sarah when he dies. Beyond the book of Genesis, David weeping over his dying son in 2 Samuel. Israel weeping not simply over death, but even over the exile itself. Old men weeping in the book of Nehemiah when they see the foundation of the new temple and compare it to the glory of the old. And even quickly running to the New Testament and back. Jesus' friends weeping when the Son of God dies, a theme to which we will return. What's the point? Weeping is all over the Bible. In many ways, it's the dark cloud that never leaves the scene, always hovering over the people of God, always, if you will, overcasting a threatening shadow that leads to despair. But God interjects into this long narrative of weeping joy. God inserts on those days where weeping is appropriate uh, joy that would replace Weeping. Weeping is the fruit of the fall. Weeping is the evidence that this world is broken. Think about it this way. Why do we weep? It's because sin has entered the world. When will we stop weeping? When we are gone from this world and sin no longer reigns in death. It's evidence. Apart from sin, there would be no weeping in this world. And after death, there will be no reason to weep at all. It's the one bright Silver lining, when a Christian dies, is that we stand on this side weeping, and they stand on the other side rejoicing. Weeping in this world reminds us exactly that, that we are still in this world and in these bodies. That is why God in His grace, God in His kindness, gives us a day that is holy and set apart, not simply in an ethical sense, but holy and set apart even in an emotional sense. A day when that always present reality of death and sin, that day of mourning and weeping, is pushed away. And for a day, a holy day, the people of God rejoice instead. But there is a day that we must think about, a day that is even more important than that fall day in 444 BC. And not only is there a day, a point in time, that is more holy than others, there's also a person that is even more holy and set apart than Israel. Someone even more important than Nehemiah and Ezra and the scribes and the priests, even as the people of God are gathered on that fall day as one man. In other words, this is what I'm trying to pull after, what is God's real response to our weeping? It's not simply the Feast of Booths, and it's not simply the Day of Atonement. It's not sending the men, Ezra and Nehemiah, the scribes and the priests, it's sending the man, Christ Jesus. God's response, beloved, to our weeping in this world because of sin, death, and all these broken, painful realities, God's response is to send His Son. The Son of His joy comes into this world of weeping. 
that beloved son with whom he is well pleased enters into a world of mourning and even death. God's response to mourning and weeping is to send the Son of God into the world. And when you think about it, it makes all the beautiful sense in the world. Here in Nehemiah 8, the people of God are rightly unmasked, once more in a certain sense, naked and ashamed before the Word of God, and even there, rightly weeping over the reality of their sin in contrast to the bright light of the Word that is shown upon them. But when the Son of God comes, He will do what the people of God in Nehemiah 8 could not do. He would do what you and I never could nor would do. He will stand before God and his word. And guess what? Unlike the unmasked, naked and ashamed people of God, he will stand before the word of God unashamed. Without reason to weep over his relationship to the word. Because he himself has never broke it, because he himself has never transgressed it, because he himself has always done all that the word of God requires. It's really quite remarkable. Jesus may find occasion to weep in this world, but it will not be over his own sins, as the people in Nehemiah 8 rightly do, because he fully obeys it. He fully satisfies it. When he comes to the end of his life, he says, Father, I have done it all. What a remarkable thing to say, even as he prays in John 17. And so while he does not stand there weeping over his own sins, yet the Son of Man does come into this world to weep over someone else's. To weep over ours. To weep over our broken relationship to the Word of God. He will weep over the sins of his people. He does it in Matthew 23. He weeps with great anguish outside the tomb of Lazarus when death has taken his friend. But it's not enough for Jesus to weep as though an audience was standing before him and he were simply a spectator while they stand on stage. Or Lazarus is passive in the tomb and nothing can possibly be done, as his sister and friends might say. It is not enough for Jesus to weep. Even feast days are not enough. And the Day of Atonement is not enough. Jesus will fulfill all these things, but Jesus will fulfill them by taking action. He will take action. He will take on, if you will, do battle, if you will, with the very occasions, the very thing that makes us weep. He will battle sin for us. He will battle death for us. He will offer the better sacrifice than that offered on the Day of Atonement. He will bring about a greater forgiveness, even the one of sending a scapegoat to the east, to the west. He will die for our sadness, and he will rise for our joy. That is the hope of the gospel, God's ultimate response to the sin, the sadness, the brokenness of this world is not simply sending the Son or the death of the Son. The ultimate answer to our sadness is the resurrection. It is the resurrection of the Son of God. And in many ways, beloved, it is the only true answer to our sadness. For what else in this world that makes us happy cannot be lost? What else in this world that can be put in your hand to make you smile, little kids, cannot be taken or will not one day break? And even the joyful relationships that we have with one another, will it someday come to some terminus and either you or the one beside of you, one of the two, will be at a funeral weeping? But the resurrection of the Son of God 
not only overcomes our sadness, the resurrection of the Son of God guarantees a day that is even greater than the Feast of Booths, a day that is even greater than that fall day in 444, a day when you and I, beloved, will enter into an arena of happiness and joy, and never from that arena shall we return. What God interjected into history, even here in Nehemiah, is a foretaste of resurrection joy. When the people of God who sat in great darkness have seen an even greater light. When the people of God who were exiled because of their sins have now been restored and brought up from that land of captivity. When the people of God stood there rightly weeping, God gave them an occasion, a resurrection-like occasion, to turn their sadness into far greater Joy. And so what was their response? And with what should we respond? Well, that is our third and final point. When God turns our sadness into joy. If God's ultimate response to our weeping is the death and the resurrection of his son, what should our response be? What should our response be to a God who turns our mourning and weeping into laughter and joy? For those of you who can find the rhythm, even dancing. Well, first of all, let me say clearly and unambiguously, our first response to this text should be to make sure that we have actually come to Jesus Christ through genuine faith. Let me say it rather plainly and clearly. If you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have every reason to be sad, and no reason to be joyful. You ought to weep. You ought to weep for yourself. You ought to weep for the thought of standing before a God who not only commands, but who judges. You ought to recognize that like the people of God, you too stand before him unmasked, naked and ashamed, and without one who is standing there on your behalf. You should recognize that in this life you actually have no hope. And in the world to come, what awaits you is judgment. You should not simply weep, however. You should repent and believe and come savingly and sweetly to Christ himself. And for the people of God, it's not enough to just stop weeping. I'm not saying that weeping is inappropriate. I'm not saying that it's sinful. I'm not saying that it's shallow. There are times when our weeping is very appropriate. There are times when the Bible elsewhere will command us even to weep with others who weep, just as we rejoice with those who rejoice. But there is also time, and you should say, uh, thank God loudly, though quietly within your heart. There are also times when we ought to celebrate, even in a world that is broken and full of mourning and weeping. There are days that God sets apart and that we ought to set apart as well with less distraction from the brokenness of this world, and more engagement with the things of heaven, where God turns our mourning into laughter, our sadness into song. Uh, There are days when we ought to gather together as the people of God to rejoice in all that He has done, and to stand for His word, and to hear it, and to heed it as faithfully as we possibly can. And then there are times, uh, even like uh, after church, when we ought to do exactly what the text says, Go home, eat the fat, and drink the wine. I take that to mean a nice steak and a cabernet with it. But you can interpret it as you wish. And even beyond that, even beyond 
the command to go home and eat the fat and drink the sweet wine. Notice what Nehemiah tells the people of God. It's here that we see uh, even more of a connection to what happens in the book of Acts chapter 2. In the context of God telling them, this is not a time to weep. This is a time to celebrate and rejoice. They are told as well to give gifts to those who are in need. Verses 10 and 12 talk about not simply feasting and celebrating, but even being generous. It's a beautiful scene. One author puts it really well. Here in Nehemiah 8, we see an awful lot of New Testament behavior all the way back in 444 B.C. in the Old Testament. Why? Because just like the people in Nehemiah chapter 8 and Acts chapter 2, there also we saw that the people were, and I'm quoting here, cut to the heart when they heard the word of God. They knew outside of Christ they were naked, ashamed, and unmasked. And they knew what that would mean, standing before the God who gave his word. But then they heard the gospel. And those who were cut to the heart were ministered to by the great physician. And those wounds were mended. And their nakedness was replaced with clothing. And their sadness was replaced with joy. When they heard the good news of the gospel, they began to rejoice that their sins were forgiven and their hope was secure. And not only did they begin to celebrate, they even went on to celebrating and feasting together. And this mountain of momentum continues to build where their excitement, their celebration over the forgiveness of their sins and the coming of the Son of God leads them not simply to feast and to celebrate together, but even by giving gifts to the poor and sharing what they had with one another. Beloved, this is truly otherworldly behavior driven by an otherworldly joy. When the people of God, rather than crave the idols of comfort and ease and fixing all of their hope upon earthly things and finding their peace, their rest, their joy, their satisfaction and temporary comforts, here they do the exact opposite as though releasing their grip on those earthly things, giving those very things generously to others. And in particular, it is not simply in response to the gospel, it is on a day connected to the resurrection of the Son of God, a Sabbath day. If there was a day of feasting and rejoicing in Nehemiah 8, how much more, and be with me here, I think this is an important point, should the Lord's day be framed the same way? For God has a holy people, but God also has a sense of holy time. There is time that God sets apart from your earthly cares and distractions. There is time that God sets apart from the burdening things that so often weary our hearts. There is time that sets apart for it is holy. There is people that sets apart for his people are holy. And he wants his holy people gathered together in one place, standing together as one man, enjoying the holiness of the Lord himself. This is why we call it the Lord's Day. It is the day of the Lord. That day that the Lord gathers with his people. That day that the Lord has secured victory for his people. And it's that day that we celebrate that Jesus Christ has been victorious over sin, over death, and perhaps most importantly, over us. It's not just that he conquered sin and death. It's also that he conquered us. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day that we rejoice 
And the people of God, as the people of God, at the word of God, because we hear it from the mouth of God. He speaks to us through the ministry of his own word. This is the day, and I know what many of you are going to do when this is all over here, just a little while, you're going to go home and have a feast. And you might not say it's a feast. Ask uh, the other 80% of the world right now. And they'd say, actually, that is a feast. You might even break out uh, that sweet wine. It is in the text, I'm just saying. This is the day we feast and celebrate with our friends and our family in Christ. It is a day that becomes, even on occasion, more punctuated and enhanced as we celebrate the victory of our Lord by way of a meal. And then we go out on the back lawn and we continue the celebration as we share our food, our gifts with one another. This is the day when we who have received much freely give much. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So I love the way the text kind of finds a very gentle landing toward the end. Noticing uh, the language here that we have. Verse 11. So the Levites calmed all the people. I pause there. There are times when you and I get a little worked up, don't we? We get a little worked up. We get a little upset. We get out of control. You know that feeling. I know that feeling, but, but you can almost sense, this is, this is stretching it a bit, I grant it, but it, it's almost like a hug for the soul. So the Levites calmed all the people. They were weeping. They were mourning. Loud, audible cries, anguish. And now they've been calmed down. And what did the Levites say? Be quiet. Another way of saying it, it's just like Psalm 4610, be still. Often that language is used in connection with uh, you be still while God does something. You be still, Israelites, while God handles the Egyptian. You be psalm, disciples, I will take care of the storm. Be still, be silent, for this day is holy, and do not be grieved. The Levites calm the people and tell them not to be grieved, and all the people go their own way, verse 12, in a really remarkable way, and notice again what they do, and all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to him. There is a time for weeping. There is a time for mourning. But there is also a time for great joy, for rejoicing, for gladness, for singing, for sharing. And if that day is to be found anywhere, if that time is to be found anywhere, certainly is to be found on the Lord's day, because this is the day of resurrection victory. It is a day of great joy and resurrection hope. When else in the life of the Christian should we have more joy than when we gather together as one man in the presence of the Word of God and reminded of the victory of God over this world, over sin, over death, over us. So it really is right to say, although Hitler got it horribly wrong, Christian hope is truly out of this world. Christian joy is truly out of the world. It is not apart from the Lord, for without the world, the Lord there is no joy. It is bound to the Lord, the Lord of glory, the Lord of victory, the Lord of the resurrection, the Lord of of our joy. And when the word of God is handled rightly, the Christian ought to rejoice. Let's pray.
Our great God in heaven, we thank you that you sent not simply preachers, but ultimately you sent your son, that word incarnate, the one who was to be preached. We thank you that Jesus came into this world not to avoid the realities of sadness and brokenness. In many ways, he experienced them himself. In many ways, he witnessed them himself. He grieved over his friends and wept over them. He grieved over Israel and he wept over them. He grieved over death and he wept over it. But he could do more than grieve. He could do what none of us can do when we stand grieving over loved loved ones who were lost or broken somehow. He could actually take their place and even fix them. And so we thank you for the triumph of the Son of God, his resurrection not only into glory, but his resurrection into that everlasting joy and peace. And we thank you that what has become his everlasting inheritance by way of his resurrection, he has already been pleased to share with us by way of his spirit. So we thank you for the joy of the Lord that truly is our strength. But I know that many who are listening here, including myself, have reasons on occasion to truly be sad. Things in this world that have broken our hearts. And that is why it is so important for us to remember that Christian joy is otherworldly. The joy of the Lord is our strength. So it help us more and more, even as we make our way through this world, to fix the eyes of our faith upon things that are higher than this world. And to find there a joy that is not only inexhaustible, but one that cannot be taken, would help us to walk, to live with the joy of the Lord as our strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.